I shall preface this story by saying that I do not know Japanese pronunciation, so I will say these two, the, these names, to the best of my ability. But know that I probably will be mispronouncing names. That being said, this is the story of Kaguya Hime. Or the Lady Kaguya. Long ago, there lived an old bamboo cutter by the name of Senugi no Miyako. One day, while he was busy with his hatchet in a grove of bamboo, he suddenly perceived a miraculous light, and on closer inspection, discovered in the heart of a reed a very small creature of exquisite beauty. He gently picked up this tiny girl, only about four inches in height. And carried her home to his wife. So delicate was this little maiden that she had to be reared in a basket. Now it happened that the bamboo cutter continued to set about his business, and night and day as he cut down the reeds he found gold, and, once poor, he now amassed a considerable fortune. The child, after she had been but three months with these simple country folk, suddenly grew in stature to that of a full-grown maid, and, in order that she be in keeping with such a pleasing, if surprising, event, her hair, hitherto allowed to flow in long tresses about her shoulders, was now fastened in a knot on her head. In due season the bamboo cutter named the girl the Lady Kaguya, meaning the precious slender bamboo of rice of, of the field of autumn. When she had been named, a great feast was held, in which all the neighbourhoods participated. Now the Lady Kaguya was, of all women, the most beautiful, and immediately after the feast, the fame of her beauty spread throughout the land. Would-be lovers gathered around the fence and lingered in the porch with the hope of at least getting a glimpse of this lovely maiden. Night and day these forlorn suitors waited, but in vain. Those who were of humble origin gladly began to recognise that their, that their adoration and admiration and tokens and gifts were all useless. But five wealthy suitors still persisted and would not relax their efforts. They were the Prince Ishizukuri, the Prince Kuramochi, the Sadajin Daegagon Abinomiushi, I'm so sorry for these pronunciations, Chiyunagon Otomonomiyuki, the Morotada, the Lord of Iso. These ardent lovers bore the ice and snow of winter and the thunderous heats of midsummer with equal fortitude. When these lords finally asked the bamboo cutter to bestow his daughter upon one of them, the man politely explained that the maiden was not really his daughter, and as that was so, she could not be compelled to obey his own wishes in the matter. At last the re laws returned to their mansions, but still continued to make their supplications more persistently than ever. Even the kindly bamboo cutter began to remonstrate with the Lady Kaguya, and to point out that it was becoming for so handsome a maid to marry, and that among the five noble suitors she could surely make a very good match. To this the wise Kaguya replied, 
Not so fair am I that I may be certain of a man's faith, and were I to mate with one whose heart proved fickle, what a miserable fate were mine. Noble lords, without doubt, are these of whom thou speakest, but I would not wed a man whose heart should be all untried and unknown. It was finally arranged that Kaguya should marry the suitor who proved himself the most worthy. This news brought momentary hope to the five great lords, and when night came, they assembled before the house where the maiden dwelt, with, with flute music and with singing, with chanting to accompaniments and piping, with candescent tap and clap of fan. Only the bamboo cutter went out to thank the lords for their serenading. When he had come into the house again, Kaguya thus set forth her plan to test the suitors. In northern India is a beggar's bowl of stone, which of old the Buddha himself bore, in quest whereof let Prince Ishizukuri depart and bring me the same, and on the mountain Horai that towers over the eastern ocean grows a, tr a tree with roots of silver and trunk of gold and fruitage of pure white jade, and I bid Prince Kuramuchi fare thither and break off and bring me a branch thereof. Again, in the land of Morokoshi, men fashion fur robes of the pelt of the flame-proof rat, and I pray the De Denagon to find me one such. Then, of the Chunangon, I require the rainbow-hued jewel that hides its sparkle deep in the dragon's head. And from the lands of the Lord Esau, I would fain receive the cowrie shell that the swallow brings hither over the broad sea plain. The prince Ishizukuri, after pondering over the matter of going to distant Tenjiku, which is northern India, in search of the Lord Buddha's begging bowl, came to the conclusion that such a proceeding would be futile. He decided, therefore, to counterfeit the bowl in question. He laid his plans cunningly, and took good care that the Lady Kaguya was informed that he had actually undertaken the journey. As a matter of fact, this artful suitor hid in Yomato for three years, and after that time discovered in a hill monastery in Tochiya a bowl of extreme age resting upon an altar of Binzuro, the securer of sickness. This bowl he took away with him and wrapped it in brocade and attached to the gift an artificial branch of blossom. When the Lady Kaguya looked upon the bowl, she found inside a scroll containing the following. Over seas, over hills, hath thy servant fared and weary, and wayworn he perisheth. O oh, what tears hath this has cost this bowl of stone, what floods of streaming tears. But when the Lady Kaguya perceived that no light shone from the vessel, she at once knew that he had never belonged to the Lord Buddha. She accordingly sent back the bowl with the following verse. Of the hanging dewdrop, not even the passing sheen dwells herein. On the hill of darkness, the hill of Agura, what couldst hope thou to find? The prince, having thrown away the bowl, sought to turn the above remonstrance into a compliment to the lady who wrote it. Nay, on the hill of brightness, what splendour will not pale? Would that away from the beauty, would that away from the light of thy beauty? The sheen of yonder bowl might prove me true. It was a prettily turned compliment by a suitor who is an utter humbug. This latest poetic 
poetical sally availed nothing, and the prince sadly departed. Prince Koramuchi, like his predecessor, was equally wily, and made it generally known that he was setting out on a journey to the land of Tsukushi in quest of the jewel-bearing branch. What he actually did was to employ six men of the Uchimoro fa family, cra celebrated craftsmen, and secure for them a dwelling hidden from the haunts of men, where he himself abode, for the purpose of instructing the craftsmen as to how they were to make a jewel-bearing branch identical with the one described by the Lady Kaguya. When the jewel-bearing branch was finished, he set out to wait upon the Lady Kaguya, who read the following verse attached to the gift. Though it were at the peril of my very life, without the jewel-laden branch in my hands, never again would I have dared to return. The Lady Kaguya looked sadly upon this glittering branch and listened without interest to, to the prince's purely imaginative story of his adventures. The prince dwelt upon the terrors of the sea, of strange monsters, of acute hunger, of disease, which were the trials upon the ocean. Then this incorrigible storyteller went on to describe how they came to a high mountain rising out of the sea, where they were greeted by a woman bearing a silver vessel which she filled with water. On the mountain were the wonderful flowers and trees, and a stream, rainbow-hued, yellow as gold, white as silver, blue as precious ruri, or lapis lazuli, and the stream was spanned by bridges built up by divers' gems, and by it grew trees laden with dazzling jewels, and from one of these I broke off the branch which I venture now to offer to the Lady Kaguya. No doubt the Lady Kaguya would have been forced to believe this ingenious tale, had not at that very moment the six craftsmen appeared on the scene, and, by loudly demanding payment for the ready-made jewel branch, exposed the treachery of the prince, who made a hasty retreat. The Lady Kaguya herself rewarded the craftsmen, happy, no doubt, to escape so easily. The sad Aijin, or left great minister, Abenomiyoshi, commissioned a merchant by the name of Awokai to obtain for him a fur robe made from the flame-proof rat, and when the merchant's ship had returned from the land of Morokoshi, it bore a fur robe, which the sanguine Saijin imagined to be the very object of his desire. The fur robe rested in a casket, and the Saijin, believing in the honesty of the merchant, described it as being of the sea-green colour, the hairs tipped with shining gold, a treasure indeed of comparable loveliness, more to be admired for its pure excellence than even for its virtue in resisting the, fl the flame of fire. The Salajin, assured of success in his wooing, gaily set out to present his gift to the Lady Kaguya, offering in addition the following verse, Endless are the fires of love that consume me yet unconsumed, is the robe of fur, dry at last are my sleeves, for I shall I not see her face this day? At last, Saraijin was able to present his gift to the Lady Kaguya. Thus she addressed the bamboo cutter, who always seems to have been conveniently on the scene at such times. If this robe be flown am thrown amid the flames and not be burnt up, I shall know it is the very truth, the flame-proof robe, and may no longer refuse this lord's suit. A fire was lighted and the robe thrown into the flames, where it perished immediately. When the Sarajin saw this, his face grew green as grass, and he stood there astonished. But the Lady Kaguya discreetly rejoiced, and returned the casket with the following verse. Without a vestige even left, thus to burn utterly away, 
Had I dreamt it of this robe of fur, alas, the pretty thing, far otherwise would I have dealt with it. The Chiagon Otomonomioki assembled his household and informed his retainers that he desired them to bring him the jewel in the dragon's head. After some demur, they pretended to set off on this quest. In the meantime, the Chiagon was so sure of his servant's success that he had his house lavishly adorned throughout with exquisite lacquer work in gold and silver. Every room was hung with brocade, the panels rich with pictures, and over the roof were silken cloths. Weary of waiting, the Chiagon, after a time, journeyed to Nanawa and questioned the inhabitants if any of his servants had taken boat in quest of the dragon. They had Chianagon learnt that none of his men had come to Nanawa, and considerably displeased at the news, he himself embarked with the helmsman. Now it happened that the thunder god was very angry, and the sea ran high. After many days the storm grew so severe, and the boat was so near sinking, that the helmsman ventured to remark, The howling of the wind, and the raging of the waves, and the mighty roar of the thunder are signs of the wrath of the god whom my lord offends would slay the dragon of the deep, for through the dragon is the storm raised, and, well, if it were my lord, offered a prayer. As the Chiagon had been seized with a terrible sickness, it is not surprising to find that he readily took the helmsman's advice. He prayed no less than a thousand times, enlarging on his folly in attempt to slay the dragon, and solemnly vowed that he would leave the ruler of the deep in peace. The thunder ceased and the clouds dispersed, but the wind was as fierce and strong as ever. The helmsman, however, told his master that it was a fair wind and blew towards their own land. At last they reached the strand of Akashi in Harima, but the Chiragon, still ill and mightily frightened, vowed that they had been driven upon a savage shore, and lay full length in the boat, panting heavily and refusing to rise when the governor of this district presented himself. When the Chianagon realised at last they had not been blown upon some savage shore, he consented to land. No wonder the governor smiled when he saw the wretched appearance of the discomfited lord, chilled to the very bone, with swollen belly and eyes lustrous to slows. At, at length the Chianagon was carried in a litter to his own home. When he had arrived, his cunning servants humbly told their master how they had failed in the quest. Thus the Chianagon greeted them. You have done well to return empty-handed. Yonder dragon assuredly has kinship with the thunder god, and whoever shall lay hands on him to take the jewel that gleams in his head shall find himself in peril. Myself am sore spent with toil and hardship, and no guerdon have I won. A thief of men's souls, and a destroyer of their bodies is the Lady Kaguya. Nor ever will I seek her abode again, nor ever bend ye your steps to the ward. We are told in conclusion that when the women of his household heard of their lord's adventure, they laughed till their sides were sore, while the silken cloths he had caused to be drawn over the roof of his mansion were carried away, thread by thread, by the crows to line their nests with. Now the fame of the Lady Kagya's beauty reached the court, and the Mikado, anxious to gaze upon her, sent one of his palace ladies, Fusago, to go and see the bamboo cutter's daughter and to report to his majesty of her excellence however when the fusago when fusago reached the bamboo cutter's house the lady kaguya refused to see her so the palace lady returned to court and reported the matter to the mikado 
His Majesty, not a little displeased, sent for the bamboo cutter and made him bring the Lady Kaguya to court that he might see her, adding, A hat of nobility, perchance, shall be her father's reward. The old bamboo cutter was an admirable soul, and mildly discountenanced his daughter's extraordinary behaviour. Although he loved court favours, and probably hankered after so distinguished a hat, it must be said of him that he was first of all true to his duty as a father. When, on returning to his home, he discussed the matter with the Lady Kaguya, she informed the old man that if she were compelled to go to court, it would certainly cause her death, adding, the price of my father's hat of nobility would be the destruction of his child. The bamboo cutter was deeply affected by these words, and once more set out on a journey to the court, where he humbly made known his daughter's decision. The, the Mikado, not to be denied even by an extraordinarily beautiful woman, hit on the ingenious plan of ordering a royal hunt, so arranged that he might unexpectedly arrive at the bamboo-cutter's dwelling, and perchance see the lady who could set at defiance the desires of an emperor. On the day appointed for the royal hunt, therefore, the Mikado entered the bamboo-cutter's house. He had no sooner done so than he was surprised to see in the room in which he stood a wonderful light, and in the light none other than the Lady Kaguya. His Majesty advanced and touched the maiden's sleeve, whereupon she hid her face, but not before the Mikado had caught a glimpse of her beauty. Amazed by her extreme loveliness, and taking no notice of her protests, he ordered a palace litter to be brought, but on its arrival the Lady Kaguya suddenly vanished. The Emperor, perceiving that, perceiving that he was dealing with no mortal maid, exclaimed, "'It shall be as thou desirest, maiden, but tis prayed that thou resume thy form.' that once more thy beauty may be seen. So the Lady Kaguya resumed her fair form again. As his majesty was about to be borne away, he composed the following verse, Mournful the return of the royal hunt, and full of sorrow the brooding heart, for she resists and say behind the Lady Kaguya. The Lady Kaguya thus made answer, Under the roof o'ergrown with hobine, long were the years she passed, how may she dare look upon the pa the palace of precious jade, the celestial? Sorry, in the third year after the royal hunt and in the springtime, the lady Kaguya continually gazed at the moon. On the seventh month, when the moon was full, the lady Kaguya's sorrow increased so that her weeping distressed the maidens who served her. At last, they came to the bamboo cutter and said, Long has the Lady Kaguya watched the moon, waxing in melancholy with the waxing thereof, and her woe now passes all measure, and sorely she weeps and wails, wherefore we counsel thee to speak with her. When the bamboo-cutter communed with his daughter, he requested that, he should t that she should tell him the cause of her sorrow, and was informed that the sight of the moon caused her to reflect upon the wretchedness of the world. During the eighth month, the Lady Kaguya explained to her maids that she was no ordinary mortal, but that her birthplace was the capital of Moonland, and that the time was now at hand where she was destined to leave the world and return to her old home. Not only was the bamboo-cutter heartbroken at the sorrowful news, but the Mikado also was considerably troubled when he heard of the proposed departure of the Lady Kaguya. His Majesty was informed that, at the next full moon, a company would be sent down from that shining orb to take this beautiful lady away, whereupon he determined to put a check upon the celestial invasion. He ordered that a guard of soldiers should be stationed at the bamboo-cutter's house, armed and prepared, if need be, to shoot their arrows upon these moon-folk, who would fain take the beautiful Kaguya away. 
the old bamboo cutter naturally thought that with such a guard to protect his daughter, the invasion from the moon would prove utterly futile. The Lady Kaguya attempted to correct the old man's ideas on the subject, saying, Ye cannot prevail over the folk of yonder land, nor will your artillery harm them, nor your def def defences avail against them, for every door will fly open at their approach, nor may your valour help, for be ye never so stout-hearted when the moonfolk come vain, will be your struggle with them. These remarks made the bamboo-cutter exceedingly angry. He asserted that his nails would turn into talons, in short, that he would completely annihilate such impudent visitors from the moon. Now, while the royal guard was stationed about the bamboo-cutter's house, on the roof and in every di direction the night wore away. At the hour of the rat a great glory, exceeding the splendour of the moon and stars, shone around. While the light still continued, a strange cloud approached, bearing upon it the company of moonfolk. The cloud slowly descended until it came near the ground, and the moonfolk assembled themselves in order. When the royal guard perceived them, every soldier grew afraid at the strange spectacle, but at length some of their number summoned up the sufficient courage to bend their bows and send their arrows flying. But all their shafts went astray. On the cloud there rested a canopied car, resplendent with curtains of the finest woollen fabric, and from out of the car a mighty voice sounded, saying, Come thou forth, Niakumaro. The bamboo cutter tottered forth to obey the summons, and received for his pains an address from the chief of the moonfolk, commencing with, Thou fool, and ending with the command that the Lady Kaguya should be given up without further delay. The car floated upward and upon the cloud till it hovered over the roof. Once again the same mighty voice shouted, Ho there, Kaguya, how long wouldst thou tarry in this sorry place? Immediately the outer door of the storehouse and the inner latticework were opened by the power of the moonfolk, and revealed to the Lady Kaguya and her woman gathered about her. The Lady Kaguya, before taking her departure, greeted the prostrate Babu-cutter and gave him a scroll bearing these words. Had I been born of this land, never should I have quitted it until the time came for my father to suffer no sorrow for his child. But now, on the contrary, must I pass beyond the barriers of this world, though sorely against my will. My silken mantle I leave behind me as a memorial, and when the moon lights up in the sky, let my father gaze upon it. Now my eyes must take their last look, and I must melt to yon sky, where I fain would fall, meteor-wise, to earth. Now the moonfolk had brought with them, in a coifer, a celestial feather robe, and a few drops of the elixir of life. One of them said to the Lady Kaguya, Taste, I pray you, of this elixir, for soiled has your spirit become with the grossness of this filthy world. The Lady Kaguya, after tasting the elixir, was about to wrap up some in the mantle she was leaving behind for the benefit of the old bamboo-cutter who had loved her so well, when one of the moonfolk prevented her and attempted to throw her over, the so over her shoulders the celestial rope, when the Lady Kaguya exclaimed, "'Have patience yet a while, who dons yonder rope changes his heart, and I have still somewhat to say ere I depart.' And she proceeded to write the following to the Mikado. Your Majesty deigned to send a host to protect your servant, but it was not to be, and now is the misery at hand of departing with those who have come to bear her away with them. Not permitted was it to her to serve your Majesty, and despite her will was it that she yielded not obedience to the royal command, 
and wrung with grief it is her heart thereat, and perchance your majesty may have thought the royal will was not understood, and was opposed by her, and so will she appear to your majesty lacking in good manners, which she would not your majesty deemed her to be. And therefore humbly she, st she lays this writing at the royal feet, and now must she don the feather robe and mournfully bid her lord farewell. Having delivered the scroll into the hands of the captain of the host, together with a bamboo joint containing the elixir, the feather robe was thrown over her, and in a moment all memory of her earthly existence departed. When the Lady Kaguya entered the car, surrounded by the company of moonfolk, and the cloud rapidly rose skyward till it was lost to sight. The sorrow of the bamboo cutter and of the Mikado knew no bounds. The latter held a grand council and inquired which was the highest mountain in the land. One of the councillors answered, In Suruga stands a mountain, not remote from the capital, that towers highest towards heaven among all the mountains of the land, whereupon his majesty composed the following verse, Never more to see her, tears of grief overwhelm me, and as for me, with the elixir of life, what have I to do? Then, with the scroll with which the Lady Kaguya had written, together with the elixir, was given to Tsuki no Iwasa, Iwakasa. These he was commanded to take to the summit of the highest mountain in Suruga, and standing upon the highest peak, to burn the scroll and the elixir of life. So Tsuki no Iwasaka heard humbly the royal command, and took with him a company of warriors, and climbed the mountain and did as he was bidden. It was from that time forth that the name Fuji, Fujiyama, never dying, was given to the yonder mountain, and some say that the smoke of that burning still curls from its high peak to mingle with the clouds of heaven.